Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's uh, edition of the Weiss Seminar Lecture uh, Series, Philadelphia in the Age of Revolution. This week, we have Dr. Ashley White, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Miami, Coral Gables. Dr. White was a visiting fellow at the University of Paris, and among other honors, has spent a year as a dissertation fellow at the McNeil Center for Early American Studies and the at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Her forthcoming publication, Encountering Revolution, Haiti and the Making of, early, of the Early U.S. Republic, is highly anticipated by me and my friends, and I'm <laughs> sure other scholars also who study uh, the powerful relationship that she's going to talk about today between uh, revolutionary U.S. and Haiti. Uh, we can expect that this text will build on Dr. White's attention to cultural exchanges between the United States and the Francophone world and also how the rights of man are both imported and exported around the region. The example set by the revolted slaves of Saint Domingue uh, was both a threat to all slaveholding societies at this period, but also a beacon of hope and freedom at the earliest stages of abolitionist agitation in the United States. So today it's my great pleasure to present to you Dr. Ashley White, who will speak today on how Philadelphia faced the Haitian Revolution. Thank you. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here today. I'd like to thank uh, Dustin for that very lovely introduction and thank Sean Gowdy for inviting me here to, to give a talk. It's simply a pleasure to um, share my work with you and I look forward to the conversation after my talk to answering your questions and hopefully having um, a lively discussion. Uh, in August 1791, Slaves in the French Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue rebelled, taking advantage of the disruption among the island's ruling classes caused by the French Revolution. In so doing, the enslaved majority inaugurated what would become the Haitian Revolution. Over the next 13 years, violence racked the colony as black and colored Saint-Domingans faced intractable resistance to their bid for freedom and citizenship. Plantations went up in flames, Spanish, British, and French armies invaded, and thousands of residents fled to other Caribbean islands, to Europe, and to North America. The former slaves persevered, and finally in 1804, the largest slave uprising in history ended with emancipation and the foundation of the Second Republic in the Americas. At first glance, the dramatic events unfolding in the French Caribbean in the 1790s seemed to have little to do with Philadelphia. These two sites in the Atlantic world had different climates, economies, and imperial backgrounds that had shaped their societies in uh, distinct ways. But since the American Revolution, Philadelphia and Saint-Domingue had been intimately tied. With independence, the United States lost some of its previous trade routes. Most significantly, the British West Indies became off limits, at least legally. Saint-Domingue, thanks to the US-French alliance, helped to fill the breach. So much so that by the early 1790s, the colony ranked second, just behind Great Britain, in volume and value of trade with the United States. This trade was crucial to the economy of Philadelphia, as merchants found on the French island ready markets for Pennsylvania cereal crops, produce, and even furniture and other wares. This growing traffic fostered social, intellectual, and cultural connections between Philadelphia and Saint-Domingue. Merchants uh, cultivated trade routes and friendships as they corresponded across the seas. Colonists from the island traveled to the Quaker City on vacation, seeking refuge from the tropical heat. And when the white elite in Saint-Domingue established a scientific society, they named it Cirque de Philadelphe, in honor of their brother institution, the American Philosophical Society. Given that Atlantic cities were also, as historian Julius Scott reminds us, capitals of Afro-America, it seems reasonable that trade between Saint-Domingue and Philadelphia encouraged ties between black residents in both places, especially since black sailors were instrumental on these voyages. Seen in this light, then, it's not so surprising that Philadelphians took notice as word reached them about the uprising in Saint-Domingue. But quite frankly, city residents and Americans more generally could not help but pay attention to events in the French colony. 
The Haitian Revolution, along with its counterpart in France, were the latest iterations of Republican revolution in the Atlantic world, an enterprise on which Americans had embarked just a decade or so before. However, in the case of Saint-Domingue, slaves and free people of color took revolution to, to an ideological terrain which few white Americans dared to tread. They pushed Republican ideals to the radical conclusion that all men, regardless of race, are free, equal, and entitled to the rights of citizens. Just how this experiment would pan out uh, had Philadelphians of all races and political stripes eager for the latest news from the French colony. Throughout the 1790s, the American press worked to satiate this curiosity and demand for news from the island. Papers up and down the East Coast featured detailed, if not always accurate, coverage of the revolution. Everything from accounts of battles and proclamations from leaders to forecasts on trade prospects and opinion pieces on potential resolutions. Word about the revolution circulated in less formal, but no less influential venues as sailors, uh, slaves, merchants, and exiles brought stories and rumors from the colony to residents in U.S. seaports. And their reports rippled through networks of communication deep into the countryside. While these currents of news helped black and white Americans to imagine the war in Saint-Domingue, the arrival of at least 20,000 refugees to the United States quite literally put a face on the revolution. Locals could see with their own eyes the colonists, slaves, and free people of color they had heard so much about. Immigration records for this uh, period are unreliable, but Philadelphia received thousands of Saint-Domingans throughout 17, the 1790s and early 1800s. Now, the size of this migration pales in comparison to that of other migrants in this period, yet because of this controversy surrounding the Saint-Domingans' flight, they attracted more consideration than their numbers would suggest. The refugees, in short, brought the Haitian Revolution to Philadelphians' doorsteps and forced them to confront what its implications were for the U.S. Republic, especially for the future of slavery. Although Philadelphia was transitioning from slavery to freedom, this process was uneasy. And white residents, even abolitionists, were unsettled by the radical demands of Haitian revolutionaries, namely immediate emancipation and the full participation of black men as citizens. White city residents sought to curb the influence of the revolution on the local black community, and black Philadelphians drew inspiration from events in the French colony and tried to adjust its message and means to better suit their specific context. There were several components to Philadelphians' reactions to the refugees and the revolution that spawned their migration. Today, I will focus on some of the social and cultural aspects of this confrontation. Like most white observers in the Atlantic world, white residents uh, struggled to come to terms with why the Haitian Revolution had occurred. They were reluctant to credit the enslaved for plotting and executing such a sophisticated rebellion. Instead, they looked for other explanations, and as part of this process, they analyzed the appearance and behavior of the Saint-Domingans in their midst. In the 18th century, appearance and behavior were crucial indicators of character and the attributes of individuals were extrapolated to sum up the temperament of entire populations. With the Saint-Domingan refugees, white Philadelphians searched for something distinct in their nature that might account for the slave rebellion and hence absolve the United States of a similar fate. In many respects, the refugees were different from their Philadelphia peers. However, white residents deployed these distinctions strategically in order to claim that Philadelphia, despite uh, its gradual emancipation and its persistent racism and racial inequality, was immune to the challenges of the Haitian Revolution. Meanwhile, black Philadelphians fought against this reading of the revolution and sought to express sympathy with uh, the black and colored refugees in the Quaker City. But this solidarity was not necessarily simple or straightforward, given the social and cultural um, differences between these two groups. Now, the Saint-Domingan refugees were hard to miss on the streets of Philadelphia. With about 30,000 people crowded into a few square miles, the Quaker City was densely populated. And in this tight space, locals were almost sure to rub elbows with exiles. 
Refugees clustered near the heart of the city, wanting to stay close to the sources of news and employment. They took up rooms in boarding houses uh, and from local residents, and they pursued almost every line of work imaginable, from merchants, lawyers, and doctors, to day laborers, artisans, and dancing instructors. City newspapers were littered with advertisements for their services, as refugees quartered locals' business, and the exiles even founded their own periodicals. Printed in French, or sometimes in double columns of French and English, these newspapers featured the latest word from France, the colonies, and the local exile community. Perhaps the most important newspaper came out of the printing shop and bookstore of the refugee Moreau de Saint-Marie. And uh, there you have Moreau de Saint-Marie. He looks exactly as I imagined him when you read his writings. Uh, <laughs> one of the few kind of gratifying moments. Um, uh, Merreau had been a prominent lawyer in Saint-Domingue and a member of the Cirque de Philadelphie. Uh, and he had penned numerous ethnographic and political tracts in the 1780s. But he soon ran afoul of the French Revolution, and after traveling through several U.S. cities in the early 1790s, he finally established himself, and for a time at least, in, in Philadelphia. His bookstore stood at the corner of First and Walnut, and employing two refugees to work the press, Moreau reprinted the most recent tracts from France and Saint-Domingue, as well as published original pieces. Any exile looking for news from the French Atlantic world headed to his shop. Now, Moreau's bookstore was a hub of activity for the white Saint-Domingan diaspora, yet the exiles also participated in Philadelphia's broader institutional life. Black, white, and colored Saint-Domingans filled the pews of the city's Catholic churches, contributing notably to the size of the congregations and altering their makeup. Whereas previously Philadelphia's Catholic churches had been dominated by the Irish and Germans, the exiles brought a multiracial and francophone sensibility to these sacred spaces. In a more secular vein, refugees and locals met in taverns, coffee houses, shops, clubs, and theaters. They attended the same balls, parties, and amusements, and they bore witness to the latest events and calamities. Inhabitants welcomed and even advocated such interaction. In the early 1790s, notices for plays and concerts were frequently printed in both French and English, so as to include the exiles in the festivities. Centers for Learning welcomed educated exiles, and residents invited Saint-Domingans, at least those with status, into their parlors to partake of tea, dinner, and conversation. In these meetings, refugees and locals found much to delight in each other's company, and some encounters between in individual exiles and residents went so well that they married, and for those of you who read Sensei, you know that she married an, an exile. Right? While principally the purview of white refugees and locals, these sites facilitated interactions among black and colored populations as well. Free people of color were not barred from certain spaces, and as enslaved and indentured exiles and locals accompanied their masters and mistresses or were sent out on errands, they too met up and exchanged gossip in much the same way as their white counterparts. For all of this camaraderie, however, these encounters were critical opportunities for Philadelphians to take stock of the exiles. And the refugees' Caribbean background was central to the, these assessments, especially those concerning appearance. According to popular notions of the day, being born in the tropics meant that Saint-Domingans differed physically from European Frenchmen and from North Americans, as the island's heat, uh, so the theory went, corrupted the very organs of inhabitants. These distinctions were supposedly apparent to any acute observer. In the case of the refugees, white women, as well as black and colored people, were the subjects of the most scrutiny. Now, this phenomenon may reflect the gaze of white men, who are the most represented recorders, yet there is no reason to suggest that men were not interested in appraising other men. In this era, they did so constantly. Rather, it seems that commentators located the most telling features of a society at what was deemed its nadir, rather than its apex. The best uh, evidence for visual discernment between uh, North Americans and Saint-Domingans is among enslaved populations. In part, this reflects the nature of available sources. We lack evidence for white refugees that is comparable to the descriptions and scores of runaway notices for black exiles. 
These advertisements indicate that certain visual characteristics were associated with black San Domingans, or as Americans called them, the French Negroes. At times, this nationalized terminology operated as a kind of shorthand. In a notice for the runaway slave Berland, his uh, owner warned Philadelphia masters not to be fooled, that although Berland was a French Negro man, he look, quote, looks very much like an American Negro. Right. Master Thomas Keene noted that his slave Tom was, quote, African-born, but has much the appearance of a French Negro. Right. These advertisements suggest that some slaves use master's categories, French, American, African, right, to their advantage, right? Disguising themselves with the attributes of another type, right, they turned a tool of oppression into a means of individual rebellion. These classifications also reveal a shared visual culture among masters and slaves in the Atlantic world, a common but certainly not the sole visual vocabulary for appraising people and their origins. Now, enslaved San Domingans were remarkable, at least in Philadelphia, because of the visible imprints of West Indian slavery on their bodies. As a way to keep track of slaves, San Domingan masters and mistresses branded them on the chest with the owner's last name or initials. Moreau de Saint-Marie contended rather defensively that this branding in San Domingue was reserved for African, not Creole, or those born in the colony. Um, slaves, but given that the overwhelming majority of slaves in Sundomang was African-born, the practice was pretty commonplace. Notices for runaway French Negroes in the United States mention these marks frequently, and usually American slaves did not bear such scars. Uh, branding had been used uh, earlier in the century, but in the Revolutionary Era, masters generally frowned on the practice. A letter from the merchant Jean Girard in Cape Francais, which is the northern point, uh, port in Saint-Domingue, uh, he wrote to his brother Stephen Girard, the famous merchant, in Philadelphia, um, and this letter points to the discrepancies between these two standards. In December 1786, Jean wrote concerning a young uh, slave, Sam, who belonged to Stephen, but was on loan to Jean in Saint-Domingue. According to Jean, Sam ran away constantly and cost Jean money uh, much money to recover him each time. Jean complained that he was at his wit's end, and so he had to take drastic measures. He wrote, quote, I will stop this by branding him in fear of losing him. Anticipating his brother's censure for such a step, Jean added, quote, I must do something. But the advertisements for runaway French Negroes in the United States imply that recognition of an enslaved Santomigan was almost instantaneous. It did not require an intimate inspection for branding scars. Instead, clothing was key, and this held true not just for differentiating a French Negro from an American one, but for assessing all members of the local and refugee populations. At a time when visual portrayals were scarce, clothing was as crucial to discerning individual identity as were physical features, and dress operated um, also in a more general terms in ter to signal status, nationality, and gender. One exile noted that in the United States, quote, more than anywhere else, it is the clothes that make the man, or in this case, the woman, the freedman, and the slave as well. Some white refugees worried that their migration compromised their appearance, leading locals to misread them. Foreseeing this possibility, one exile whose clothes were in tatters when he boarded a ship for North America wrote how he, quote, carefully guarded my hat and shoes so that they would honor me at my disembarkation. Notwithstanding the financial straits of many white refugees, the inventories of their estates attest to everything from smart clothes and pounds of hair powder to outstanding debts to local hairdressers. Clearly, they were concerned that their appearance reflect the level of respectability that they claimed. In Philadelphia, black San Domingans, free people of color, and white women were all identifiable by their clothes. Right? Uh, local commentators pointed to the white refugee ladies, quote, thinness of dress, which suited the tropical climate and emphasized their exotic origins. In general, white San Domingan women were lauded for their beauty. An article in the Philadelphia magazine, The American Museum, celebrated their, quote, elegant shape and the activity and suppleness of their limbs that was produced by the temperature of the climate. They were lauded for their delicacy of features, majestic walk, and their large eyes, which exhibit a happy medium between languor and vivacity. 
I know. Significantly, <laughs> white Creole women knew how to handle their beauty as they struck an, an uncanny balance between ease of movement and erect posture. And this was a guise that was important to the genteel of the 18th century Atlantic world. But the revealing garments of these women raised some eyebrows in Philadelphia. You know, loose, flowing, diaphanous fabrics were fashionable in France in this period, especially in the second half of the decade when neoclassicism was all the rage. And elite women donned these white, transparent dresses that, in the words of one wry observer, quote, did not leave the beholder to divine, but to perceive every secret charm. Fashion-conscious Philadelphia women followed the Parisian scene in this decade, and some, not without scandal, adopted these semi-nude uh, chemise gowns. While alluring, the appearance of the white refugee women bordered on the indecent in the eyes of some, and hence it began to hint at a kind of corrupt character among these women. Now, slave clothing, both for Americans and for San Dominicans, was usually flimsy not by choice, but by imposition. Yet the dress of refugee slaves and masters demonstrated other interesting points of intersection. Enslaved exiles were described as dressing in the, quote, West India Creole manner. This is in uh, Philadelphia advertisements. And in comparing notices for runaway black Sandivingans with those for US slaves, a few distinguishing, although not hard and fast, features come to light. American slaves, and particularly women, often wore handkerchiefs uh, tied around their heads. But it seems that the, the French Negroes were noticeable because of either the style or the material of their handkerchiefs. They stood out among, among American slaves. According to advertisements, black San Dominicans pierced one or both ears, usually sporting a gold hoop with greater frequency than American slaves. Also, several tied their shoes with ribbons. Now, interestingly, these accoutrements, the handkerchiefs, the earrings, uh, the laced rather than buckled shoes, were popular fashions among white and free people of, of color in Saint-Domingue. Right? Elaborately tied handkerchiefs and lace shoes were trendy in France and in the colonies in the 1790s, and some white men were known to wear gold hoop earrings. This borrowing, though, is not a simple case of enslaved Sandomigans imitating their masters. Rather, it points to a complicated exchange across racial lines in which the flow of mimicry did not uh, follow strict hierarchies. In the colony, this phenomenon was witnessed most often among white women who imitated the styles of free colored women as both vied for the attentions of white men. Right? This can be most uh, seen uh, clearly with madras handkerchiefs, right, the wearing of which began in Saint-Domingue as a punitive sumptuary law against free women of color. But because their style of folding the handkerchief was so fetching, right, white women in the colony, including Bonaparte's sister, Madame Leclerc, adopted the accessory. So this blurring of lines between white and colored women persisted in exile, as white Philadelphians were affronted by what they called, quote, the obnoxious luxury enjoyed by several Sandomingan women of color. And I have here um, a couple of slides. These are no doubt stylized, but they give you a sense of what um, free women of color uh, in particular might be wearing. Um, you can see a vignette of three there on the right, and you can see the elaborately tied Madras handkerchiefs, um, as well as another one on the left. And here I have another side of uh, slaves in Saint-Domingue and what they might be wearing. Then again, you note the handkerchief too. Now, in the eyes of black and white residents, Sandomingan refugees looked different. Right? Quite simply, their features and clothing made them stand out on Philadelphia's streets. Some Americans cribbed the refugee looks in the name of fashion or an attempt to escape bondage or both, um, and in so doing, reflected a, a degree of admiration. Right? But the branding of slaves, the skimpy dress of white women, and the lavish circumstances of free women of color gave other uh, locals pause, suggesting a, silent, a society too violent and salacious, too ruled by passion, to be truly virtuous. For their part, the white refugees thought the look of Philadelphians, especially the enslaved and freedmen, 
They thought it signaled a crassness that compromised any pretensions to virtues among Philadelphians. Merleau de Saint-Marie professed his shock when buying fabric in Philadelphia for a slave and being shown, as he put it, only the coarsest and ugliest material. When he asked for something better, um, the shopkeeper retorted that the cheap cloth was, quote, good enough for Negroes. What white Philadelphians tried to celebrate as noble simplicity of their society, some white refugees saw as baseness. Now, late 18th century men and women were also keen observers of comportment. Right? How people behaved in various situations provided critical insight into the character of individuals and their larger society. And here, uh, white Philadelphians found much for concern. A young white Sandemingan recounted his gaffe at a ball where he had gained the attentions of three or four ladies, by his own account, according to his, uh, thanks to his uh, witty repartee. But he lost their interest when he executed, in his terms, a fatal pirouette on the dance floor. In several cities, refugee men earned a reputation for their luxury and their lack of reason at the gaming table. And one exile recalled a conversation with a Philadelphia woman where she peppered him with questions about eating frogs. Right? Now, such disparaging remarks were informed by long-standing notions about colonial and continental Frenchmen, hence the question about frogs. Um, what set white Sandemingans apart from their metropolitan counterparts, however, was the overwhelming presence of enslaved and free people of color. And white Philadelphians appraised the behavior of these populations to draw conclusions about Sandemingan society. Free women of color were a sensitive subject for white uh, male Sandemingans throughout the 18th century. European commentators pointed to free women of color as a sign of the lascivious nature of the colony and its residents, and white Philadelphians did the same when refugees arrived to their shores. In the 1790s, white locals claimed to be stunned uh, to see white Sandemingan men walking arm in arm with uh, colored women in broad daylight. Right. Moreau de Saint-Marie viewed these reactions as hypocritical, pointing out that there are plenty of, in his terms, surreptitious favors between local white men and free-colored and enslaved women. In his estimation, white residents' astonishment at the Saint-Domingans was a front to disguise their own infelicities. Whether actually witnessed or merely rumored or willfully ignorant, white Philadelphians found these characterizations convenient in that they helped to distinguish themselves from their French Caribbean peers. The implication that ran throughout these assessments of refugee behavior was that white Philadelphians and Americans more generally were more virtuous than white Sandemigans, right? They avoided foppish dance moves, the vagaries of the gaming table, and the temptations of black and colored women. In other words, North Americans were less creole right, than their tropical peers. Now, these tropes were reinforced by new popular culture productions that perpetuated stereotypes about free Sandemingan women, both white and colored. Uh, consider these two examples. The first is a 1795 fireworks display in Philadelphia. The elaborate exhibition featured explosions that resembled wheels, vessels, and the sun, as well as more abstract representations of folly, love, and friendship. But most interestingly for our purposes, the 10th display in the lineup was, quote, a great mechanical piece which showed the caprices of French Creole ladies. Now, unfortunately, no eyewitness accounts of this spectacle survive. Right? Uh, I would give my left arm. Uh, but a brief description of the event suggests that the piece included a built set of the ladies, probably posed in a vignette, with fireworks set off uh, around or from it. Now, the exact nature of their caprices is unclear. They could be sexual, racial, or in a less vicious vein, fashionable. Uh, most fireworks displays in this period came with a program that explained what the audience was supposed to see. And this was a handy aid given the unpredictability of a, a very fiery medium. But even if the scene required identification as the caprices of French Creole ladies, the exhibitors assumed that once told, the spectators would get the joke. Right? While the name of the firm hints at a French origin for the show, they tailored their display to suit an American audience with, for example, a piece that featured 15 stars, an allusion, as they explained, to the United States. 
So the choice to include the French Creole ladies in the lineup indicates an understanding that jokes at their expense were, were just as American as the flag. A more narrative typecasting of female refugees turned up on the Philadelphia stage. In the 1790s, John Murdoch, uh, a native of the city and a hairdresser by profession, maintained that he was moved to compose his own theatrical works after being, quote, at times much disgusted to see and hear pieces performed so foreign to the circumstances of a Republican people. He wanted, quote, a drama which would be more consonant to the ears of Americans. And his 1795, The Triumphs of Love, Happy Reconciliation, was the first effort in this regard. The plot of the play is pretty simple. It is a story of young men looking and finding love in Philadelphia. Keeping in mind that Murdoch intended for his tale to ring true for American audiences, the importance is in the details. What made it, in Murdoch's view at least, American. Some of the main characters are Quakers, a decision perhaps not surprising in Philadelphia. But more interesting still, Sandeming and refugees are central to the plot. A pair of exiles, a white brother and sister, are befriended by the aptly, if somewhat obviously named, Quaker family, the Friendlies. Uh, not very creative. George Friendly Jr. falls in love with the Sandemingan maiden named Clementina. Clementina's story of her arrival is typical of those told by white refugees. Uh, she laments her cruel reversal of fortune, the loss of her riches, her flight from the island, her arrest by pirates, and her penniless state in Philadelphia. The quintessential damsel in distress, her story and her beauty charm the prosperous George Friendly Jr., who, within minutes of their first meeting, proposes marriage and relishes his role as protector. George, like the city and the nation he represents, provides asylum to the distressed, the beautiful, and the deferential. Right? As that love story unfolds, another episode involves a refugee with quite different overtones and resolution. George's friend, the unsubtly named Trifle, announces he has fallen in love, and he begs George to guess with whom. Knowing that Trifle is, as George puts it, fond of variety, he speculates, yeah, it gets better, he speculates that Trifle is smitten with a black woman. Trifle denies such an allegation, attesting that he has, quote, not quite so strong a stomach for such a union. Instead, he is enamored, quote, with one of those called people of color, who he thinks possesses a complexion, quote, superior to all of our boasted fair whites and reds. Tis a fine standing color, oh, such soft, such sweet, languishing, melting, dissolving looks. Goading Trifle on, George asks to see this, quote, yellow piece of perfection. And here Trifle tells of his encounter with a woman of color on the street. Quote, as I was addressing her in her own language, you know I speak French very well, a dog that was chasing a pig ran between his legs and sent him crashing to the ground. In the confusion, Trifle loses sight of his love to the comedic benefit, it is presumed, of his audience. However, the episode underscores assumptions that white Philadelphians held about themselves and about their society. That people of color were French and were not indigenous, only white and reds were. That no respectable member of society was attracted to them, and not even a trifle could stomach a black woman. Okay. Trifle's tale reasserts an emerging US fiction regarding interracial relations, denying miscegenation and its challenges to the one-drop rule and to American virtue, and instead attributing it to the French Caribbean. In these popular performances, be they fireworks displays or plays, white Saint Dominican women were derided, uh, but there is hope for some at least those who fit the model of Clementina and found an American guardian. For black and colored women from the colony, their inclusion into US society was impossible. They were exotic and foreign, and white Philadelphians looked for assurance that they would stay that way. Even as they socialized with Sandomingans, hired their services, or admired their fashions, white Philadelphians resuscitated stereotypes about the exiles in an attempt to hold them at arm's length and to claim the distinctiveness of North Americans and their singular suitability for Republican life. 
These assessments by white Philadelphians treat black and colored San Domingans as objects rather than as actors, as a population that needed only characterization and not actually confrontation. But Philadelphians, both black and white, knew otherwise. After all, these black and colored people were coming from the most radical site in the Atlantic world. White Philadelphians were worried about the influence of their presence, and black Philadelphians were inspired by it. However, these responses re represent the two ends of a whole spectrum of reaction that reveals how black and white Philadelphians tried to navigate the challenges and opportunities that black and colored exiles presented. While the motivation for white San Domingans uh, to leave the island is, is fairly clear, that for black and colored residents is, is less so. For their part, white refugees deployed a language of loyalty to explain why black and colored people migrated with them to Philadelphia. Here the story typically went that the slave or free person of color was so devoted to his or her master that he or she would rather go with him than stay in, in Saint-Domingue. There is maybe a grain of truth to these claims in some instances, given what we know about the relationship, uh, the complicated re relationship between masters and slaves. But this rhetoric masked more sophisticated relationships between white exiles and black and colored ones. White residents coerced black and colored San Domingans uh, to flee the island, certainly. Yet many elected to leave the war-torn colony for their own ends. In some cases, black and colored refugees traveled with white exiles as part of family units. They were the sons, daughters, or lovers of usually white men. Evidence also shows that the migration of some black and colored refugees with white San Domingans reflected a bargain. Right? They would travel with them to Philadelphia as long as they were paid for their services and given free return passage to San Domingue whenever they wanted. Perhaps these people had economic motivations for moving to the United States temporarily, as they calculated they had, a better, had better prospects to secure earnings abroad than in Saint-Domingue, monies that could eventually prove pretty helpful back in the French colony. Finally, some black Saint-Domingans migrated to the United States, and Philadelphia in particular, to gain their freedom. Right. Although emancipation had been declared in Saint-Domingue in 1793-1794, its future was uncertain, as French Republican forces in the colony battled counter-revolutionaries, as well as invasions from Spain and Britain, all of which were committed to reinstating slavery in the colony. Therefore, from the perspective of an enslaved Saint-Domingan, attaining freedom in Philadelphia might have seemed a surer bet. And for their part, Philadelphians stood behind their laws. A group of white San Domingans had petitioned the Pennsylvania General Assembly for exemption from its law that stipulated that all slaves, unless owned by members of Congress or foreign ministers, were considered free six months after their entry into the state. The reporting committee of representatives ruled in early 1793 that although the members sympathized with the white refugees' distress, they had to withdraw their request. The legislatures did not feel like, quote, justified in recommending a dispensation with a law which appears to have originated from the sacred and immutable obligations of justice and natural right. The committee are of the opinion that slavery is obviously contrary to the laws of nature, the dictates of justice, and the constitution of this state. As a result of the legislature's ruling, officers of the, uh, officers of the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society registered 456 free black San Domingans between 1793 and 1796 alone. The variety of motivations for migration is characteristic of the movement of black and colored people throughout the Atlantic world. And it also points to the fact that the black and colored exiles did not necessarily comprise a united community. Uh, most strikingly, several free people of color had been slave owners in Saint-Domingue, sometimes quite prominent ones, and they too sought to bring and maintain their bondsmen in the United States. Right? This clearly is at odds with, um, with the, the slaves who are, are looking for freedom. In addition, black and colored refugees did not blend easily into the local African-American community either. Uh, San Domingans and Philadelphians of African descent were divided by language and religion, as the refugees spoke mostly French and were on the whole Catholic, in contrast to the English-speaking and mostly Protestant local black population. Class played a factor too. 
and that some of the free people of color from Saint-Domingue had enjoyed access to wealth and education and the sense of superiority that went with them that was well beyond the purview of most black Philadelphians at this time. These hurdles were not necessarily insurmountable, for as we'll see, there is evidence of common cause between black and colored Saint-Domingans and black Philadelphians. However, just as white Philadelphians and Saint-Domingans found much to divide them, so did their black and colored counterparts. Right? In this regard, black and colored refugees and locals were as diverse and as human as any other population. That said, white Philadelphians had their own take on black and colored Saint-Domingan exiles, one that usually failed to match the, their actual circumstances. In general, white residents were suspicious of the potential discord that the black and colored refugees could wreak in the city. Even as the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society worked for the liberation of hundreds of enslaved Saint-Domingans, they found the Haitian Revolution deeply troubling for its immediacy, its violence, and its quick extension of rights to black men. As a result, the PAS retreated from the universalist vision of its earliest days and advocated a more moderate and limited approach to emancipation, one that was specific to its population and its state. In the eyes of Pennsylvania anti-slavery advocates, the increasing radicalism of the Haitian Revolution fell outside the purview of their efforts. And despite the admirable work of the PAS on behalf of Black Saint-Domingans, the white leadership worried about, the, about becoming a haven for black and colored refugees whose character they held in doubt. In 1798, Governor Thomas Mifflin of Pennsylvania heard that shiploads of Saint-Domingans had arrived in Philadelphia's harbor and having evacuated Port-au-Prince when the British, tr British troops stationed there rebelled. Oh, withdrew, if only they rebelled. All right, uh, dreading another influx of black Saint-Domingans, Mifflin issued a proclamation that disallowed French Negroes from landing in Pennsylvania. Right? He encouraged President Adams to urge adjacent states uh, to adopt similar measures, but, but to no avail. To a certain extent, white Philadelphians were right to fret, for even the scant sources available demonstrate that black locals found events in Saint-Domingue ideologically compelling. In the mid-1790s, for example, citizens of color in, of Philadelphia, this is the name they have for themselves, drafted a letter to the French National Assembly uh, thanking the legislatures for uh, pass passing the immortal decree that ended slavery in the French colonies. Although the writers made no mention of the rebellion in Saint-Domingue, they referred to the slaves in the French possessions as, quote, our brothers. In light of the extensive newspaper coverage of the revolution and the swarms of refugees in the city, black Philadelphians knew what was happening in France and in Saint-Domingue. They adopted the revolutionary appellation of citizen, and as their letter indicates, they saw their interests tied to those of French Caribbean slaves. Nevertheless, aware of the maelstrom of negative opinions surrounding the in insurrection, the authors emphasized the decree of the National Assembly an act that complemented the achievements of the Pennsylvania State Legislature. Right? Philadelphia's free blacks were treading a fine line between expressing their enthusiasm for the Haitian Revolution and steering clear of its more radical and the perspective from white locals more threatening implications for uh, Philadelphia society. A few years later in Philadelphia, however, several hundred African Americans expressed their frustration with the slow pace of freedom and persistent racism in a much more aggressive way. In the summer of 1804, uh, they marched through the city in military formation armed with bludgeons, and the following day the group reconvened and proclaimed to white passersby that they would, quote, show them St. Domingo. Right. Now, importantly, this demonstration happened in 1804, the year of Haiti's independence, and on July 4th and 5th, during celebrations of American independence. Now, the significance of these pregnant dates is, is hard to miss. Black Philadelphians were calling for a U.S. republic that looked more like Haiti, one in which all black people were free and black men enjoyed the full rights of citizens. Responses to the Haitian Revolution among African-Americans intensified in the early 19th century as an independent Haiti became a lodestar in the campaign for emancipation and citizenship at home. But during the 1790s, resistance inspired by the Haitian Revolution occurred more often at the individual level. 
As San Domingans and African Americans alike turned to one of the long-standing weapons in the arsenal of, of slaves, running away. The case of one runaway serpent suggests how the slave insurrection in Saint-Domingue affected the resident colored community. In November 1794, Crispin, a 16-year-old man indentured to the prominent merchant Stephen Girard, Crispin disappeared from Philadelphia. Crispin was born in Malabar, a coastal region of southwest India, um, and although sources offer no insight about how exactly he ended up, bound to Girard. The merchant had connections with French firms in the area and had hoped to expand his own enterprise into the Indian Ocean, in particular to Ile-de-France. Uh, Crispin spoke French much better than English, and when in Philadelphia, he chose to underscore his French affiliations with his clothing. Girard noted that his servant usually wore a national cockade made of ribbons cut out in the shape of a carnation. Now, Crispin's cockade indicated his endorsement of events in France, include, and including, as it turned out, those in Saint-Domingue. As Girard discovered a year later, Crispin posed as a, the slave of a Spaniard who was traveling to the Caribbean in order to abscond to Port de Paix, which is a, a seaport in the northwestern uh, region of the colony. On learning of Crispin's whereabouts, uh, Girard appealed to French revolutionary leaders in Saint-Domingue to capture and return him to Philadelphia. But Etienne Leveau, who was the uh, governor general of the colony between 1793 and 1796, he rejected uh, Girard's request with indignation. And it's worth quoting Leveau at some length. He wrote, to, he wrote to Stephen Girard, you must know very little of me to dare to hope that in defiance of our glorious constitution, I would consent to force a man against his own will to leave the land of liberty where he has taken refuge. In coming to Port-de-Paix, Crispin has come to enjoy liberty. In Philadelphia, he was a slave. Have I the right to order him to take up his chains again? Assuredly not. Now, in Laveau's estimation, and in Crispin's as well, Saint-Domingue, not Philadelphia, was the land of liberty. Laveau overstated the certainty of freedom in the colony. Uh, in the, the end of slavery in Saint-Domingue was still very much contested in the mid-1790s. But he spoke with such conviction because he felt that the French revolutionary regime was committed to making freedom and racial equality a reality in Saint-Domingue. According to the governor general, the colony would become a sanctuary from slavery if it was not quite so already. And so he attributed Crispin's actions to his desire for freedom. Crispin understood the meaning of the cockade he wore and believed that he would be a free citizen in revolutionary Saint-Domingue. Right? Now, Crispin's flight is remarkable, both for its trajectory and the survival of sources surrounding the case, but it is typical in its reflection of the impact of the Haitian Revolution on local people of color. Events in Saint-Domingue stirred black Philadelphians, uh, more often individually, but also sometimes collectively, to find freedom and mitigate racism in the early republic. The black exiles threw into sharp relief the promises of Haiti and the shortcomings of Philadelphia. But when witnessing this protest, White Philadelphians tried to downplay the potential for black residents to press their desire for equality a la Saint-Domingue. Uh, to do so, white residents fell back on stereotypes of African Americans that emphasized their inability to recognize the full import of French and Haitian revolutions. Right? We can see this dynamic at work in another play by our friend John Murdoch. In 1798, the same year that Mifflin tried to bar the entry of more black and colored exiles, Murdoch wrote The Politicians, or A State of Things, in which he used the notion of black people as citizens as a vehicle for humor. The play featured a scene in which three black men, with the stereotypical names of Caesar, Pompey, and Sambo, met on the street. They addressed one another using the French revolutionary title of citizen, as was fashionable among many white Philadelphians, and they mimicked the polite tests of gentlemen in a vulgar dialect that Murdoch employed for comic effect. Right? The three men conversed about the possibility of war with France. One professed himself in favor of France, the other for Britain, and the third for the United States. But as Murdoch made clear, their opinions were formed not as individuals, understanding sort of the political content of the stakes, but rather their opinions were formed in accordance with those of their masters. Uh, 
Pompey, who backed the French, explained that he did so because of their declaration of emancipation, yet this was a not enough in Murdoch's uh, estimation to warrant this, his support. His view uh, reflected his masters. Uh, Murdoch writes, my master for France, so I. Now, Murdoch utilized this exchange to plug a position of American neutrality in international affairs. By placing the discussion in the mouths of black people, a formerly depoliticized population, he tried to tread lightly around a very contentious topic. Murdoch worked from his audience's uh, assumptions about the nature of black Americans, but such prejudices were not necessarily incongruous with Philadelphia's uh, abolitionist sentiment. Right? In fact, for Murdoch, the two went hand in hand. In the triumphs of love, right, George Friendly was so moved by what he called an untutored speech given by his slave Sambo that Friendly manumitted him. Friendly elaborated, however, that Sambo's life as a slave was better than that of his white counterparts. There are, quote, according to Friendly, many thousands of the poorer class of white whose actual situation are vastly inferior to Sambo's. He has no anxious cares for tomorrow, no family looking up to him for protection, no duns at his door. In the end, though, Friendly finds that, quote, there's something wanting. It is cruel, it is unjust for one creature to hold another in a state of bondage for life. Sambo, now calling himself Citizen Sambo, once he's received his freedom, celebrated his liberty by promptly getting drunk and singing a bastardized version of an anthem popular during the Reign of Terror. Uh, the former slave associated his emancipation with the French Revolution, its most violent moment, no less. Yet, as Murdoch showed, uh, Sambo had no idea what the revolution or citizenship meant. As such, in Murdoch's view, there was no need to fear that this anthem and the bloodshed that accompanied it would be revitalized in a Philadelphia context or more broadly in the United States. Murdoch was trying to assert that black Philadelphians were different from their San Domingan peers, and white Philadelphians, like so many George Friendlies, could take comfort in their limited version of emancipation and citizenship. Not until the 19th century could black and white abolitionists mount a forceful argument to the contrary and press for a more universal vision of emancipation and citizenship. White Philadelphians, like white Americans in other cities, had crafted a powerful narrative of the Haitian Revolution, inspired in part by their interactions with exiles in the 1790s. As they encountered refugees uh, in their midst, white locals assessed their appearance and behavior and came to the conclusion that their different and compromised character were in part responsible for the rebellion in Saint-Domingue. While in subsequent decades, the faces of the exiles eventually faded from prominence on Philadelphia streets, the legacies of their interactions with locals endured until Americans underwent their own civil war for freedom and a citizenship for all men. So. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you very much.